Welcome to Class Divide. We're up to episode six, and this is the reaction episode. And I'm with Carly Goldsmith again. We're going to discuss a bunch of stuff that came up in the catchments and admissions episode. So, Carly, we haven't spoken yet since you've you've heard it. I'd, I'd love to hear your initial thoughts about what came up in that episode. I mean, I think I kind of feel like this every week. Every time I listen to a new episode, I think that's the best episode of the podcast. <laughs> and and it was the same this week. You know, it's interesting because you talk about there have been times when you've been making the podcast where you found it quite difficult to control your anger. And it's interesting because a few people who've spoken to me about the podcast, quite a few people who've spoken to me about the podcast have said how amazing it is that you appear to be so magnanimous. <laughs> like you're so kind of calm and you're such a sort of soothing presence to take us on this journey but it's always interesting to me when you say this made me really upset like this thing made me really cross um and yes this episode at at points um made me feel really upset really angry um really annoyed really disappointed um but I thought the way that it was put together and the ways in which you spoke to both the kind of experts on this plus the local political players plus had people like Dave and 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 kind of captured what's going on at the moment. I thought it was really beautifully done. Um and it and it is my favourite episode yet. <laughs> it's so interesting you say about um my that moment when I say I'm you know, this has made me angry. I was sort of ch- chuckling a little bit to myself at how unangry I sound even when I say I'm angry about this <laughs> but I didn't quite know I mean I'm not a professional voiceover person or narrator or you know so uh, you know I don't know if I really actually got across and I'm chuck I'm almost laughing now about it but I shouldn't be because it is unbelievably rage inducing when you hear both the story of Comart closing and then you know, this project that almost happened, that could have been, that I'm not saying it would have fixed everything, but it could have made a huge difference to schooling for children in, in, in East Brighton, in Whitehawk. I mean, there's that's it, isn't it? You've got the closure of the school and then you've got this potential for catchment area review, which we currently have now again. Um, and it was interesting to hear Lloyd Russell Moyles talk about it's a once in a 20 year kind of opportunity and I think that when you hear something that's called a catchment area review, it doesn't sound that interesting or exciting or potentially that relevant to a lot of people. Um, but I don't think necessarily, and I didn't understand this really before we started Class Divide, the extent to which things like catchment areas get fixed and they get fixed for a long period of time. And so one of the things I know that we were saying to parents when we were talking to them about coming along to the hustings was actually if you've got a child it doesn't really matter what age they are if you've got a kid at primary school so they'd say well that's secondary actually that's maybe not much to do with me but it's like well if they're in year one at secondary if they fix if the catchment area review keeps things as they are so it's kind of business as usual then you'll you will be facing exactly the same challenges that parents who are putting their kids into year seven next year f- are facing um, and so actually it has got something to do with you. And I think it is that sort of once in 10, kind of 15, 20 year opportunity that we've got now because the catchment area review process is already underway. So I think that, you know, 
it's really important and I can't stress enough how significant this moment is for us as a campaign, but also for the parents in Whitehawk and for parents across the city. Because, you know, as you rightly say towards the end of the podcast, it's maybe about having a bigger conversation about what kind of city do we want to live in um, and what are the things that as a city we can be proud of and I think that if you do have a system, an education system that's more inclusive, if you can get schools to work together to kind of almost say, well, we're, you know, we're all good, which, you know, up until the backer um, Ofsted uh, report, and they will be, I mean, they are getting good again in, in, in many of their categories, you know, and that was the thing that we were told, you know, every school is a good school. There are actually no outstanding schools in Brighton and Hove. So actually, what risk is there to evening out, you know, the admission and, 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 and advantaging, giving some advantage to children who have historically and families who have historically been disadvantaged by the way the system current, the way the system works. Um, and so I think for me, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge moment. And, it, and one of the things I think made me a bit worried was that we've had that huge moment where the catchment areas were reviewed back in 2007 and that huge moment where there potentially could have been another school within walking distance of Whitehawk back in 2018 at the hospital site. And it feels to me like both of those huge moments were kind of lost for, for various reasons. And I know we've had a bit of kickback this week from kind of former councillors or people who maybe would have been formally involved in those processes saying... Well, it wasn't because we lacked the will. It was because, you know, essentially forces lined up against us that made this not happen. And and I know that there are people in the local Labour Party in particular who kind of still feel very much like scarred by those processes. But, but just because we haven't been able to achieve the thing we wanted to achieve the last two times, it doesn't mean that we can't achieve it now. But I think the big question for us and the big challenge for us is how do we go about achieving that change? Who do we need to bring on board as allies to help us achieve that change? And actually, and I think this is something that we've talked about before, what do we need to do? <laughs> like what what are the what are not even the arguments? Because I know there's that whole thing about like the political brain and like you shouldn't appeal to people's you know intellect you should appeal to people's emotions like what what are the conversations we need to be having and who do we need to be having them with that convey a message of it's good for all children like we're doing this because it's good for all children and it was interesting what byron vincent said like you want your child to be able to flourish in social settings you want them to know what life is like outside of their own bubble you want them to be able to understand the problems of the world and the beauty of the world because the idea that it's only sort of terrible things and darkness that's attached to working class lives i can i can absolutely assure you that is certainly not the case In the early days when I s sort of started working on the podcast series, I knew really quickly that the audience for this was not us and our echo chamber. It was all those people that we've got to sell this idea to, that reform is needed in education locally, but also nationally, obviously, but that's sort of beyond our, our remit to a certain extent. And part of that is 
you know, why is this a good thing? And as you say, you know, Byron laid that out, multiple people laid that out in, you know, both on an emotional level, but also, you know, on an analytical or, a, 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 you know, based on research, you know, the benefits to this. And and my my feeling is, you know, as you were just saying, you know, this will benefit the whole city. And so, you know, we've used, I've used this line, maybe overused it, it takes a city to educate its children. And I truly believe that because the city will benefit on on so many levels from the majority of its children having access to to the education they deserve. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's something that as a city, if we can pull it off, if we can achieve it. I mean, I as a parent would be proud, or as just as a, as a, as a person who lives in Brighton and Hove, I would be proud of living in a city that takes the education of all of its children seriously, including its poorest children. And it was interesting to hear Ellen Greaves talk about how there are these mechanisms that schools can use to give priority to, say, children on pupil premium. Or there are mechanisms, catchment area mechanisms, where they can have get kind of children come in from other more disadvantaged areas and that those those policies that are in place specifically to make schools more inclusive and to and to widen the the social mix but that so few schools actually use them so i think she said it was like 40 schools that kind of prioritize people premium in the country which is a drop in the ocean but i think if we were able to have a city-wide approach to this it would genuinely be something that would make us stand out it would make us be a city that people would want to live in and I think and I think it would be a city that people would want to raise their children in actually and I think what's interesting to me is like I look at my own kids who are now in their early to mid-20s and I think about what they will be like when they have children maybe in the next 10 years if they if they do have children maybe in the next 10 years you know they understand you know they can't buy houses they're stuck in the private rental sector um it's going to be very difficult for them to save, you know, actually their reality, they are not going to be the people who can pay £50,000 over the odds for a house near Dorothy Stringer, despite the fact that they are in good professional jobs. So it's not that, you know, it's because they're pot washing down the seafront, not that there's anything wrong with that. I've done that many a time. But, it, you know, they are in good professional occupations and it is just not going to be a reality for them to do the things that some of the homeowning generation that we currently have have done in order to ensure that they're able to buy advantage for their children, as in access to the schools with the highest exam grades in the city. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the stuff that Fiona Miller was was talking about, you know, about you know her, her idea on, on Ofsted getting involved in this and there being an element, a component of Ofsted that measures the amount of children on free school meals, for example, that it has in its in its um, admissions and its classes. And I was just thinking, you know, that and that, that thing she said at the end of that that sort of clip, you know, at the moment the system is set up to reward segregation. You know, it's set up to basically make schools in the system, the market system we have, um, to basically say, right, how we have to basically, we want to stay up top of league tables. And so, of course, we're going to try and do everything we can to, you know, make sure we we bring the kids in that will, will get us to that, that position. It's clearly, clearly not working for everyone, that, that system. 
No, and I think it's interesting about, it's a more kind of deeper philosophical question, isn't it, about what are the goods and services that should be in the market? You know, is education isn't a service, education is a social good. Um, and everybody pays. If you're in a state school, everybody pays for their education. They pay through it through their taxation, through taxation. And so for me, fairness is that everybody gets an opportunity to go to the school that they think best suits their needs or just 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 that we make sure that every school is inclusive and can provide the best education for all the children that go all the children that go there i mean that would be my preferred option my preferred option would be that that a school would be all schools in our city would be excellent at educating all of their children not just those children that conform to a kind of ideal learner type and I understand that schools are under enormous pressure. And I think it's really important to say this, but we say this a lot, you know, there's cuts to school budgets and the fact that I know that schools are having to to do way, way more with less resources. You know, what you want is you want a, a central government that massively increases school funding and that actually really fundamentally changes the nature of our of our school system in lots of ways. And that that those would be the things that I would if if a political party said to me that's what we would do if we got into government, that that would be the party that I would be voting for. You know, more league tables, more exams, more you know, more kind of mirroring what they think is the private sector because the private sector isn't like that any like in a way isn't like that really anymore. Um, if someone breaks that, if someone is more creative about what education should be is more willing to invest more funding, is, is willing to invest a lot more funding, but also have the hard conversations that say the way we have done it and are currently doing it isn't serving us. We need different types of learners. We need critical thinkers. We need problem solvers. We need people who can collaborate. We need people who can work together. We don't need these kind of individualistic units of pupils and families who are doing whatever they have to do in order to gain every advantage in a very individualistic system in so that they can have, you know, good individual outcomes. That's not the kind of society that does anything to to really face or deal with the challenges that we currently have. Yeah, yeah. And that, that that's the that's that line after I, after um Jack spoke about his his work at Backer. You know, that line about, you know, instead of communities looking at schools like they're a product or a service that's broken and not working and going, right, I'm just going to go to the other one because it's better. I mean, they're not bloody coffee shops, right? <laughs> you know, no one care, no one, you're not going to create generational damage because a coffee shop shuts down. But if a school shuts down, guess what happens? Yeah, exactly. And I think what's interesting is, and I don't even know if this really works, but I was trying to think of a way to kind of like communicate it that really made people understand. It would be like, I don't know, having a hospital in one part of town and having a hospital in another part of town. And I understand that there's obviously deep health inequalities. I'm not saying this doesn't already exist in some ways. I don't know. But, you know, it's like if you went into hospital, you know, if you went into the the, the, the posh hospital, not the posh hospital, but the hospital in the more affluent place, you would have an eight in 10 chance of coming out having been treated properly. Whereas if you went to the hospital less than a mile away, you'd have a four in 10 chance of being treated properly, you know. And I think the health analogy 
is useful in some ways because it's like, well, that would have consequences, right? It wouldn't just be that, oh, well, you didn't get the treatment that you needed. You can kind of toddle off and, and just live your everyday life. You know, those things have longer term repercussions. And I don't think that people really acknowledge the longer term repercussions of what it means to not get an education. I mean, you know, it's a social determinant of health. You know, the Michael Marmot review, all of the work that's been done around health inequalities, as well as, you know, in episode five, when we were talking and listening to other people's experiences about the impact that it had on who they thought they were and what they thought they could achieve. And, you know, on their kind of psychological, you know, it takes a big psychological toll. You know, I think not getting an education is a, is a catastrophe for a lot of people. And I think it's interesting that you chose to start this episode off with Darren McGarvey, you know, comment about, you know, if you see someone who is clearly in distress and is potentially living, is, is drug addicted and homeless, you know, for him, the first time they would have known what kind of society they actually had been born into would be the minute they come face to face with school. And I think he's absolutely right about that because before then you're in your family, you're in your neighbourhood, you're in your community and you don't get much of a sense of what others think of you. But the minute you enter the school system, you you do. Um, and so I think that's why school is so, so important. Mm-hmm. And we can't really sort of have this discussion without, I think, referring back to the stuff from episode four where we had the young kids talking about perceptions, you know, and, you know, as well as, you know, I think there are multiple things impacting what's happening in the um, school admissions and and catchments, but a big one has to be that perception of a certain people from a certain area, this sort of othering of people from council estates. As Byron said, you know, you, you like poor people aren't or, or poorer people aren't sort of bad people you've just been told they are and you believe they are I, I feel like that is a big part of this you know that this there's a reality and you know like how we do that how we bring people along with that how we help people gently not always gently maybe gently at first with like understanding that you know there is value there is good there is community in a place like Whitehawk, it is not everything you may have read or been told by a friend or whatever. I know, but it's really difficult, isn't it, to kind of think about doing that in a way where you're not, and I'm going to sound a bit, but you're not sort of like begging them to accept Mm. you. Yeah, why should we have to do that? I mean, that's, I know, I completely agree with you. It's like, please, I'm nice. Please like us, we're nice, I know. I, I, won't I, I completely you. agree. Oh, I completely God, agree. the thought of it makes my just oh, ugh. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, the deserving and undeserving poor. This is a long, long history. You know, this whole notion that people who are living in poverty are in some way responsible for their own, you know, you know, only responsible for their own situation and. You know, therefore, it it gives them a different type of character, and they have a different type of culture, um, and that is one that is in opposition to yours. You know, those those ideas have long roots, um, and I and again, this is something that we've spoken about in terms of 
where are the gaps in the in our understanding of this? Where are our gaps in the in the kind of research? And I think I'm really looking forward to listening to next week's episode when you go to Finland because I know they're a society that really challenged those notions and perceptions and took education out of the market in a way. Um, and that would have taken, you know, a combination of factors, including people's willingness to challenge their own perceptions um, about about what the changes would mean for them and their families. So, yeah, it's another thing that I think as part of this kind of approach to the catchment area review, not only do we have to sort of find ways to persuade people that this issue should be important to them, irrespective as irrespective of um, whether or not they have children, whether or not they have children in the system, whether or not, you know, that it's a it's a it's a city wide issue of importance. But even once you've persuaded them, potentially, you then have to actually get them to not do the things that they might otherwise do, such as writing to the local authority ombudsman, such as challenging recommendations that seek to make the city schools more inclusive. And and that is motivated for me, it's motivated by fear. It's 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 a it's a fear of the other. And so we're gonna have to do something to try to break that down. And that seems like a really big task. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. It it does when you mix it up with all that other stuff. You know, like someone on Twitter after the episode went out last week mentioned, oh, you're never going to convince all those people whose house values are like 20% higher to sort of make these changes when faced with their house value dropping 20%. And I just thought, bloody hell. Like the fact that all this stuff is so interlinked. And it's not I'm I'm, I'm unaware of, of that, but... It goes back to what you were saying um, at the start of this episode. Um, you know, the whole house price thing, buying almost buying your way into one of the so-called better schools, the best performing schools according to league tables. Um, you know, that you, you align those things, you connect those things. So, of course, when it comes to any potential change, like you're going to be like, whoa, 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 you know, my house has gone up in value because I live in this area because the good school's here. Yeah, I know. It is linked to so many different elements of people's lives. Um, and I think it's not been helpful this week on Twitter. I mean, I don't really take much notice of what Twitter says, to be honest, but is that imme- the immediate response from the, from from a lot of people is we're gearing up for a fight. It's a, you know, and... And not only are we getting up for a fight, but it's a fight that we've tried before and lost. So we're almost defeated before we've even begun. There's that sense of defeat. And I can understand if you were involved in the catchment area changes in 2007, if you were involved in attempts to get a secondary school in 2018, why you wouldn't almost be quite scared of this process and afraid of it. Um, Because it probably will politically be incredibly difficult but it worries me that the that that some people feel like it's just totally unachievable and i i, can't, I don't know who it was at the end of the podcast but i think i might get this put on a cheat on a t-shirt if you if you want to change the world but you can't change the catchment areas in your local city like 
what actually are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, that is a, it is a challenge. And I think, and it worries me that Brighton is becoming, and I don't know what the stats are around this. So it feels to me like Brighton is becoming a more unequal city because it's always been a kind of tale of two cities in a way. But I think property and property ownership really has sharpened those divides. Um, and that kind of, so the social distance between people, I think, has grown. And there's all of that stuff in kind of the spirit level research, Wilkinson and Pickett's research around, you know, if you have big gaps in income and wealth between groups, then social gradients just get steeper and steeper. And the points at which those people would meet in everyday life get fewer and fewer. And so the, the level of understanding of people's lives really starts to break down. And I think that partly I'm worried about what kind of Byron said, which was, you know, this doesn't lead anywhere good. You know, if you continue to do this, it leads to unstable societies. It leads to, you know, social fracture, disruption, instability, and maybe that, that you know, these forces are way beyond our ability to to kind of harness them and to change them. But I I don't want to live in that kind of city. I don't want to live in a divide, a deeply, deeply divided city. I don't like it now. You know, that's not, it's good for nobody at all. I was just thinking about the politics around this and, you know, with, without sort of getting overly excited or excited at all, really, but I, I, I have to have some hope. We have had some positive conversations with the new Labour Council um, and, you know, I, I have to take them for their word that they've, they've been saying some positive things about, about some of the things we're, we're pushing for. But with everything we've just discussed... They're saying that before you're in power and then doing it when you're in power are two are two very different things. And I I'm really, you know, I'm really interested to see how that's gonna work, how they're gonna work with us, um, how they're going to do so much more than possibly happened the two previous times those catchment um, um, consultations came up. Because it has to be more, it has to go beyond, as Dave said just parents who are about to put their kids into secondary school. It has to go much, much further than that. It has to be a city-wide debate about the kind of education we want for all of our children that, react, that, that, that has an impact on everyone in the city. And I just really hope that, that the, the new Labour Council really engage with that process on, a, on a deep, the deep level that it needs for, for change to actually happen. Yeah. Like you, I think that if we didn't have hope, we wouldn't be sitting here on a whatever day it is morning. <laughs> we wouldn't have done all the things we've done over the last four years if we weren't if we didn't think things could change. So I think it's always really important to hold on to that. And like you, I think like the fact that it's a majority council, it gives them opportunities to do things that they would that haven't been able to have been done in this city for twenty years. The last time there was a majority. So I think that you can't not think that this is the best position that we could be in as a campaign at this moment. 
there is both a catchment area review and a majority in the local authority of a centre-left party. So it kind of, the stars couldn't have aligned any any better for us, really. Um, and like you, I, I really hope that they have learnt from what went wrong before, because essentially we might be quite critical of previous Labour councillors and people involved in the Labour Party and said, well, you fumbled it, you fumbled it, you dropped it, you know, you kind of folded under the political pressure. But I hope that's given them an opportunity to learn from from those experiences and to be thinking about how they're going to have to do it differently. So what is it that they're going to have to do differently this time? Or is it just the, I don't you know, is it just the, you know, the level of commitment to this cause in the local party? I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we did meet with David McGregor yesterday, who's the new Labour councillor in Whitehawk, and Jill Mitchell is the is the kind of is also retained her seat in Whitehawk and has now become deputy leader of the party. Um, and David shared with us in that meeting. I know we're meeting them with them as class divide, you know, in a couple of weeks, but that they that there have already been discussions around tra- transport and catchment. So, and that the commitments that they made before the election still stand so that was positive news I think because I mean but you know it doesn't mean anything really but it's just positive news that that those things have been mentioned since because I'm sure with a city of this size with its complexity lots of things would have landed on their plates that could have pushed these things off the agenda but they have to do the catchment area review so they've got no choice um, so it has to be on their radar. Mm-hmm. And and as a campaign, I mean, I think one of the good things that's come out of the work we've been doing as a campaign and with this podcast, you know, we have obviously connected with a lot of experts who will have supporting us um, during that process. And, you know, I guess we'll, if things are going the right way, want to support the case with the council, um, you know, to help them understand the best way to, to approach this. I think it'll be useful for us to talk about what we want as a campaign. I mean, you know, it's probably important to say we're not experts in catchments and admissions processes. Um, but, you know, as a campaign, you know, I think we're probably aligned in, in, in our, our thinking around changes to catchment areas and that they are redrawn in a way that doesn't segregate the city. But is there other stuff that we, we want to see in that process? I mean, I think it was interesting that, sorry, I can't remember her name, but the professor from Brighton, who's the kind of expert on banding and kind of ca- different models of catchment areas, it Becky something. Um, but she was saying that what you want is you want to make change quickly and the quickest way to change is to redraw the catchment areas. And I was quite surprised, actually, not being an expert on catchment areas, that the local authority it is something that is totally within their power. So quite often when people have spoken to us about us trying to make the changes that we're trying to make in lo- education locally, I've said, well, actually, these are national issues. You know, you need to change national education policy in order to make any difference. But actually, this is a concrete example where the power locally, it's in local hands. It really matters. So I think for me, if what an expert in the field who has studied this for a long time 
and has researched this for a long time is saying that you want to make change quickly and the quickest way to make that change is to essentially redraw the catchment boundaries. I would be happy to say, great, let's do that. <laughs> but I think in addition to that, I'd also want to see a couple of things really, which is the transport required to make that successful is needed. There would also need to be a lot done if that was the case and we did have what I would consider to be fairer on the basis of you know, fairer access from a, the perspective of someone in Whitehawk, it would be fairer access. Um, would be work being done more broadly in the city where it, we haven't got children going into schools, where parents and other pupils are being actively hostile towards them because it's like, well, you've taken our places. Like, you've taken our... This is our school. Like, what are you doing here? You know, I really... That, that wouldn't achieve anything. I don't think. Um, and it would it would be counterproductive and counteract anything, any good that could potentially be achieved by making sure that schools aren't in a situation where nearly half of their pupils are disadvantaged, you know, state-defined disadvantaged. So I think it's much more, it's much, much more than just redrawing some lines on a map. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that again, that report that we had the children reading reading out elements of for episode four really highlights the damage that can be done to young people's perception of other people. I mean, they must have learnt that stuff from somewhere, right? And so I, I would beg any, any parent uh, from a more advantaged um, area to think very carefully about the way that you talk about the catchment stuff when it starts to come up, when you start to maybe have those debates in your family um, about the way that you talk about other people um, and the impact that could have on your child's, um, the way they see those people, because they may end up in school with some of those other people who will be good people. Um, and But, but you know, it, it will have a very damaging effect um, if those perceptions are not and, and sort of not handled in the way they should be. Mm. But I think if the research is clear and, you know, that's what they were on the podcast, it, you know, it was, you know, people do well in school when they have peers who are doing well. You know, it's good for teachers to have a more mixed kind of cohort in their classrooms because research has shown that their attitudes towards the people in their classroom changes. You know, should it be like that? <laughs> no. Is it like that? Yes. So, you know... If that's what we know, then really we should be using those research insights to directly inform the composition of our schools. And we should be doing everything we can to support the schools who are affected by changing intake to, to make it a success, to make sure that it works. Because I'm not being funny, but, you know, if you can get a good offset inspection and, you know, Bacca was good until recently and it will be good again with someone like Jack at the you know, in the leadership position. If you can get a good offset inspection when 44% of children are on free school meals, you know, that's an amazing achievement. But as Jack said, it's hard. You know, it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard shift to do that in a school where that is the socioeconomic mix because they don't have the kind of same levels of access to opportunities. They don't have the same... Levels of 
you know, maybe knowledge or, you know, of, of the education system, how it works. We know all of the problems that children face growing up in poor homes. You know, I, I know those intimately. Um, and if we could have a system where you couldn't maybe get an Ofsted good unless your disadvantaged pupils ratio meaningfully reflected your community, because essentially you could argue that they do now in the sense that if you're in, say, Molescombe and Bevendine, backers percentage of disadvantaged pupils meaningfully reflects what's in their community but what we're saying is it's not about that it's about what about the city as a whole so maybe it would be the average for the city not what is in your particular community yeah yeah i i forgot to say in the the episode that i also reached out to the heads of dorothy stringer and van Deen and other schools to be interviewed and they they declined uh, I mean, they said they were busy, and I, I sort of respect that they're running a school. And but it, you know, it was it was a shame not to have their voices in the episode because it's only through having those conversations with all of those different heads and and that then creating conversations with governors and parents is this going to happen in a in a in a positive way? Yeah, and I think it's interesting that whole family of schools notion and and Lloyd Russell Moore's being quite critical of that and saying you know, potentially they, they should be tougher in terms of calling people out. I mean, I don't know if shame, I, I don't even know if it would be shameful because some parents would be like, yeah, he's sticking up for our kids or they're sticking up for our kids, she's sticking up for our kids, you know, the head. I don't know if that's the right approach. You know, I don't know if it would be an approach I would advocate. Um, But I do think the culture in those kind of heads meetings, in the in the group of heads that are in our city is really important. And I think having spoken to a couple of heads in our city, it's clear that there are at least some feeling like the schools or the disadvantaged schools, essentially, let's use the language that the local authority use with us, the advantaged schools and the disadvantaged schools. The disadvantaged schools are being shafted by the advantaged schools. And that has to change. So again, it's not even just about the population, you know, the residential population, it's about the population of professionals that we're also going to, because they grew up, they, you know, they were, they are raised, they have been raised in this society with this, the attitudes that it has towards people growing up in poverty um, and all of the problems we think they bring with them. So it will be about heads, it will be about governors, it will be about teachers, it will be about support staff. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd advocate for shaming anyone. I would like to think there's a way of doing this that doesn't end up with attacks, it being sort of really personal. And I mean, I, I think it will be hard to avoid that. But it has to start with there being an open discussion about this. It has made me think a lot about how we do this as a city and the idea of a citizen's assembly. And it's, it's definitely something I'm sort of keeping in my back pocket at the moment as something we might do as class divide and and you know at some point in the near future to to have this as a sort of open debate that depoliticizes it that opens it up to more people than just parents um and and focuses again on that idea of the city's responsibility for educating its children mm. i mean it's interesting so when i was a lecturer i would teach my i used to do a module called about social inequality um and you know one of the 
people that we used to introduce our students to is a guy called John Rawls and he has this and it's interesting because a new book's just been published actually arguing I haven't read it yet but essentially arguing that you could take Rawls's framework Rawls's ideas to create a kind of fairer society and one of them is around the veil of ignorance and essentially making policy from what Rawls calls an original position which is essentially you have absolutely no idea where in the social structure you will end up or your children will end up so that's the place where you make policy from because at that point you're not thinking at it from a place of knowing potentially that your children will always be advantaged in the system but you're having to kind of unravel that and ask people to go okay so you have a child what would you want for that child if you had no idea where they would end up or whether or not they would have a disability you know whether or not they'd have additional needs whether or not they'd you know and there's a whole range of things that you can include in that but that's really the place where you want policy to be made from not knowing um i think because i think it would challenge people's ideas and i think it would make people think very differently about the way things are now and potentially be more open to ideas about how things could be in the future and it would also open up discussions about okay so what is fairness I mean that's one of the interesting things that was discussed in the podcast you know fairness in education is really hard to define it depends on what your position is and actually if you can take people away from their positions uh, maybe that gives us some space for a more open dialogue yeah and I, and I you know the, the podcast series has really, really been leading up to this this point. You know that that idea that anyone that's listened to this could say they're ignorant now about the impact, the history, what it means to human to people's lives for 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 you know a, a long for, for most of the rest of their lives. And if anyone has listened to this series and still thinks nothing needs to change, and we can just carry on with the status quo, I mean, I, I'd find that very hard to believe. In the next episode, we are looking at all kinds of projects that are already happening that are filling in some of the gaps. So we're going to be visiting the Crew Club, we're going to be looking more into the mentoring programme that's happening at Backer, and we're going to go further afield as well to look at places like uh, XP School in Doncaster and the work they're doing, um, looking at the way that um, education works and, and treating it in a quite a different way, and even further afield to Finland where we're going to hear from an expert, an ex-teacher, um, on, on the system there and, and how it supports its young people in learning. So I'm really looking forward to sharing that positive stuff, um, some ideas and ways forward for hopefully people to embrace and look into more. So thanks Carly for doing another one of these. I know that you know if we were both honest with each other, the thought of us sitting here <laughs> talking to each other and recording all of that is slightly uncomfortable, but nonetheless I do enjoy our <laughs> conversations. <laughs> Me too. Take care, Curtis. Cool. All right. Bye. Bye.